first centuries, humans have formed bonds with one another as a result of listening to and experiencing music together. Whether it's through concerts, jam sessions, or kicking back and listening to a favorite record, we gravitate towards those who enjoy the same sounds we do. It was music that brought Sam McCroskey and Emma Niederbrock together. Sam was an amateur horrorcore rapper, and Emma was a huge fan of the genre. When Emma and Sam first met online in 2008, they quickly became close. There was no way Emma could have known of the actual horrors that would result from her friendship with Sam. I'm your host, Natalie, and this is Talk Murder With Me, Episode 9, Psycho Sam, The Farmville Murders. First of all, it's essential that I briefly go over what horrorcore is, as it's central to the story. I'm not going to try and describe it myself, so here is the definition from Wikipedia. Horrorcore is based on horror-themed and often darkly transgressive lyrical content and imagery. Its origins derived from certain hardcore hip-hop and gangster rap artists who began to incorporate supernatural, occult, or psychological horror themes into their lyrics. Unlike most hardcore hip-hop and gangster rap artists, horrorcore artists often push the violent content and imagery in their lyrics beyond the realm of realistic urban violence, to the point where the violent lyrics become gruesome, ghoulish, unsettling, or slasher film-esque. I'll put a link in the show notes to the song Assassins by the Ghetto Boys. Formed in 1986, the Ghetto Boys were the pioneers of horrorcore rap, as far as I could tell. Richard Alden Samuel McCroskey III was born December 26, 1988 in Hayward, California, a city in the East Bay subregion of the San Francisco Bay Area. For the sake of clarity, I'll be referring to Richard McCroskey as Sam in this episode. I don't believe many people called him Richard, not even his family, who apparently called him Sammy. Sam lived with his parents and older sister, Sarah. In 2003, the McCroskey family moved to Castro Valley, California, just three miles north of Hayward. As a family, the McCroskeys were not particularly close. Sarah McCroskey would later say that they were not a quote-unquote lovey-dovey or leave-it-to-beaver type of family. In the summer of 2009, Sam and Sarah's parents split up, which Sam took pretty hard. Sam attended two high schools as a teenager, but he dropped out of both. School was a miserable place for him. He was bullied for things like his weight and his ginger hair. His sister Sarah described him as very passive and someone who rarely stood up for himself. Sam had very few friends at school and spent the majority of his time alone in his room. This social networking site, MySpace, became his escape from reality. In 2008, 20-year-old Sam was living at home, working part-time as a graphic designer and dabbling in making music, namely horrorcore rap. He uploaded his music on MySpace under the name Psycho Sam, the word psycho spelled S-Y-K-O. 
He also began communicating and making friends with other horrorcore fans and rappers. The following is a few lines from the song titled My Dark Side by Psycho Sam. You're not the first just to let you know. I've killed many people and I kill them real slow. It's the best feeling watching their last breath, stabbing and stabbing till there's nothing left. Emma Niederbrock was born October 15, 1992, to parents Mark Niederbrock and Deborah Kelly in Champaign, Illinois. At some point, they moved from Illinois to Farmville in central Virginia, although it's not clear exactly when. In 2003, Mark began serving as a pastor at Walker's Presbyterian Church in Hicksburg, Virginia. Deborah was a professor in sociology and criminal justice at Longwood University in Farmville. Emma had been homeschooled since middle school. At the beginning of 2009, Mark and Deborah divorced. Emma stayed in the family home with her mother, and her father moved out. Emma could often be found browsing and chatting with friends on MySpace, where she went by the name Ragdoll. It was on MySpace that she listened to horrorcore rap, met other fans, and learned about upcoming music festivals. In September 2008, then 15-year-old Emma met amateur horrorcore rapper 19-year-old Sam, Psycho Sam, McCroskey on MySpace. The two began chatting regularly, online and on the phone. If they were adults, you wouldn't have thought twice about the age difference, but Emma was still a minor. Sam, while quite immature and young-looking for his age, was an adult. By September 2009, Emma, now 16, and Sam, now 20, had been talking daily for almost a year. I'm just going to say here that Sam thought of Emma as his girlfriend at this point, but it's hard to tell how serious she was about him, given how events would later unfold. They had never met in person, but they were clearly very good friends, given how often they talked. Strictly for the Wicked was an all-day horrorcore festival scheduled for September 12, 2009, in Southgate, Michigan. Emma and her best friend, 18-year-old Melanie Wells, made plans to attend. Melanie, who lived in Inwood, West Virginia, about three and a half hours from Farmville, had been to many similar festivals with Emma before, and the two always had a great time. Emma and Sam decided that Strictly for the Wicked Festival would be a great opportunity to meet in person for the first time. Emma's parents, however, were understandably apprehensive about their 16-year-old daughter meeting up at a festival with a 20-year-old man she had never met face-to-face. -face. Mark and Deborah decided that they would drive Emma, Melanie, and Sam to Southgate and busy themselves in the city for the day while the festival was going on. Mark and Deborah were divorced at this point, so they were going out of their way to make Emma happy. On September 6, Sam left California for Virginia. Emma was excited to finally be meeting him in person. She posted to his MySpace page on September 7th, Next time you check your MySpace, you'll be at my house. I love you so, so much, baby. Forever and for always. 
The timeline isn't completely clear, but from what I could tell, Sam arrived at Emma's house in Farmville on the 7th, or maybe the 8th. Melanie arrived at Emma's on the 7th. I found it a little odd that Sam came to stay at Emma and Deborah's house for several days before the concert, given that Deborah did not know much about him at all. For all she knew, he could turn out to be a total psychopath. The drive from Farmville, Virginia to Southgate, Michigan is around 10 hours, 639 miles, with no stops. The festival doors opened at 1pm on September 12th. I'm guessing that they drove part way the day before, stayed over somewhere, and then drove the rest of the way to the festival on the morning of the 12th. This is just a guess, and it's not actually that important to the story. What is important, however, is that when Emma first set eyes on Sam the day he arrived at her house, she was not impressed. He had evidently made an effort to change his appearance for his MySpace photos. In reality, he looked like a different person. He appeared younger than his 20 years and was shorter than Emma realized. He wore an oversized, black hooded sweatshirt and baggy black cargo pants. His greasy red hair was combed straight down on his forehead. Emma was not attracted to him. On top of his appearance, he also came across as immature, like a young teenage boy. While Emma was polite to Sam, she was rather aloof. If she had shown signs of wanting to be in a relationship with him before, this first in-person meeting clearly changed her mind. I don't think it would be a stretch to say that Emma and Melanie found Sam irritating. The five of them, Emma, Melanie, Sam, and Emma's parents, were in for a long, awkward car ride together. Sam hoped that once they arrived at the festival, and were both in their element, immersing themselves in the music and the vibe, Emma might see him in a different light. But this was wishful thinking on his part. In fact, the situation only went downhill once they reached their destination. According to others at the festival, Emma paid Sam little attention throughout the event. Not only was she not interested in him, she was reportedly flirtatious with other guys, in person and by text. Sam noticed and did not take this well. The festival ended at 11pm on September 12th. The following day, Emma, Melanie, Sam, and Emma's parents drove back to Farmville from Michigan. At 2.43am on Monday, September 14th, Melanie posted to her MySpace page, SFTW was fucking amazing. Back in Virginia now. Be back in West Virginia on Wednesday. I miss everyone. After the post to her MySpace, Melanie went quiet. Neither her friends nor her family heard from her at all the rest of Monday or on Tuesday. This was not like her at all. After repeated failed attempts to get in touch with their daughter, Thomas and Kathleen Wells became worried. On Wednesday, September 16th, the day Melanie was due to come home, Thomas drove 200 miles from Inwood, West Virginia, to Farmville. 
It would have taken him around three hours and 15 minutes. When nobody answered the door at Deborah Kelly and Emma Niederbrock's house, Thomas sat outside in his car and waited. He hoped that the women were just out and he would see them return home. After waiting for upwards of seven hours, however, he resigned himself to the fact that no one was coming. Reluctantly, he drove away from the house, unable to shake the feeling that something was horribly wrong. When her husband returned home with no word from Melanie, Kathleen Wells began calling anyone she could think of who might know Melanie's whereabouts. She had called Emma's home several times, but nobody answered. Serial Killin' Records, SKR for short, is a small independent record label owned by Andres Schrem, based in Albuquerque, New Mexico. A lot of the horrorcore music Emma, Melanie, and Sam listened to was produced by SKR. They also organized the Strictly for the Wicked festival. Andre Schrimm writes and performs his own horrorcore rap under the name Sick Tannic. I'm not really sure what the dynamic is between horrorcore rappers and fans now, or if the music has become more or less popular since 2009. But in 2009, from what I could tell, rappers and fans were friends who would meet and talk on MySpace and hang out at festivals. After some of her own investigation, Kathleen came across the phone number for Andres Schrimm and gave him a call. Andres answered and told Kathleen that he had seen Melanie, Emma, and Sam at Strictly for the Wicked Festival. They had gone home with Emma's parents when the event ended. Beyond that, he did not have any more information. Andres assured Kathleen that he would let her know if he found out anything else. After talking to Andres, Kathleen called Emma's house again. This time, to her surprise, somebody answered the phone. It was Sam. Kathleen asked him where Melanie was, but he couldn't give her a straight answer. She quickly grew frustrated with him. She was sure that he was lying to her. On the morning of Thursday, September 17th, Kathleen called the police in Farmville. She explained the situation and asked them if they could go by the house and do a welfare check. When the police arrived at Emma and Deborah's house, they were greeted by none other than Sam McCroskey. When they asked him where Emma, Melanie, and Deborah were, he told them that they were at the movies. The police did not know who Sam was. However, I'm assuming he told them that he was Emma's boyfriend. Whatever he said, it sounded as though they took him at his word. I find it a little strange that they didn't do a bit more investigation. I don't believe they questioned him further or asked to take a look inside. I assume that Kathleen would have told them the most important parts of the story. That Melanie was supposed to have come home on Wednesday, but she had not heard anything from her. Nor had she heard from Emma or Deborah, despite multiple attempts to get in touch. I suppose Melanie was 18 and therefore an adult, so she could technically do what she wanted, including going missing of her own accord if she pleased. 
The police didn't know that Sam did not live in the house, so they did not really have reason to be suspicious of why he was there on his own. After the welfare check on the morning of the 17th turned up nothing, Kathleen called Mark Niederbrock. She explained that she was worried about Melanie, who was supposed to have come home the previous day, but she had not heard anything from her. Mark, who lived in Pamplin, Virginia, about a 20-minute drive from Farmville, told Kathleen that he would go to Emma and Deborah's house and see what was going on. He told her not to worry and that he would call her after he spoke to Melanie. This call took place around 5 p.m. Kathleen would not hear from Mark again. On the morning of September 18th, Kathleen called the Farmville police again. She was at her wit's end. She had not gotten any substantive information for days. Mark Niederbrock never got back to her. I'm not sure what she said to the police this time. Perhaps she asked to file a missing persons report for Melanie. She did manage to convince them to return to Deborah and Emma's house. When the police arrived at the house around 3.20 p.m. on Friday, September 18th, they found the door to the home unlocked. Sam, whom they had spoken to the previous day, was gone. But what hit them like a ton of bricks when they opened the door was the thick, pungent, unmistakable stench of death. It was the smell that gave them probable cause to enter the home. I can't explain how they didn't notice the smell the day before when they performed the welfare check. All I can think of is perhaps Sam saw them coming and came out of the house and spoke to them on the doorstep, closing the door behind him to mask the smell. However, a woman who later spoke to CNN about the murders recalled walking by the home with her friend on September 17th. They remarked to each other that something smelled foul and assumed it was a dead animal. The idea that it could be coming from dead people inside the house, unsurprisingly, did not cross their minds. Inside the home, police found three dead bodies in what looked like Emma's bedroom downstairs. On discovering the bodies, they were able to obtain a search warrant. Once they had the warrant and could perform a full search of the home, they discovered another body in a room upstairs. The bodies belonged to Mark and Emma Niederbrock, Deborah Kelly, and Melanie Wells, although they were not formally identified until Monday, September 21st. The medical examiner's report would conclude that each of the victims died from blunt force trauma to the head. After going through evidence in the home and checking the social media accounts of Emma and Melanie, it did not take police long to figure out that Sam had been with the girls at the festival. He had come back to Farmville with them, and now was nowhere to be found. One of the officers who had gone to Deborah and Emma's house to carry out the welfare check remembered speaking to Sam. On being shown photos of him on social media, he confirmed that it was the same young man he had had a conversation with about Deborah, Melanie, and Emma's whereabouts. The police declared a manhunt for Sam McCroskey.
Much earlier that Friday, around 4 a.m., a homeowner who lived on Poor House Road in Farmville called police to report a car that had gotten stuck in a ditch at the end of their driveway. In the car was Sam McCroskey. A tow truck and a deputy showed up at the home, and Sam was given a ticket for driving without a license. When asked about whose car it was, he responded that it belonged to his girlfriend's dad. The bodies of Mark, Deborah, Emma, and Melanie would not be discovered for another 12 hours. At this point, Sam was not wanted by the police. While the deputy and Sam were talking, it came up that Sam had plans to fly home to California the following day, Saturday the 19th. The tow truck driver, Elton Napier, offered to give Sam a ride. He accepted and asked to go to a gas station. Describing Sam, Napier told the media that he had never encountered such a terrible smell in his life. He said that he had to hold his head out of the window to stop himself from gagging. He stunk like the devil, Napier said. Up to this point, it seemed as though Sam had gotten pretty lucky. However, his luck was about to run out. Sam caught a cab to Richmond International Airport on the evening of Friday the 18th. He planned to stay the night in the airport before catching a flight to California the next day. When the deputy who responded to the call about the car stuck on Poor House Road realized that Sam McCroskey was the man he had given a ticket to at 4 a.m., he alerted his fellow officers. He told them that Sam planned to fly to California the following day. Early in the morning of September 19th, police apprehended Sam McCroskey, who had been sleeping in a chair in baggage claim at Richmond International. He was initially charged with the murder of Mark Niederbrock, grand larceny for stealing Mark's car, and robbery for taking money from Mark's wallet. More charges would come imminently. After it came out that Sam had been arrested, his friends and family expressed their disbelief. Sam's sister said that at first she could not believe it, but then reality hit her. On Monday, September 21st, Alameda County Sheriff's Office deputies served a search warrant at the McCroskey home in Castro Valley, California. They seized phones, computers, and everything they could connected to Sam. Sarah McCroskey said to the Mercury News, I just fell to my knees. I couldn't see. I couldn't talk. I feel I failed as his big sister. Sarah sensed something was wrong on September 17th when Sam called home and left a message. He said he quote-unquote wanted to make sure everyone was okay. Before he hung up, he said, I love you guys. According to Sarah, it was just not something Sam would say. Sarah also insisted that the murders were not a result of Sam's music. Much of horrorcore rap is taking you through the mind of a killer and their point of view. Psycho Sam was just a stage name. It wasn't his alter ego, Sarah said. Andre Schrimm would echo Sarah's initial belief that Sam was just not capable of such an act of violence. You would never ever imagine that kid even being a suspect. If he is found to be guilty, I would be 100% shocked. 
At the airport, as he was being led away by police, Sam reportedly said to a reporter, Jesus made me do it. Members of Mark Niederbrock's church speculated about Sam's motivations. Luther Glenn, a member of Walker's Presbyterian Church, said, I think it's deeply rooted in Satan, if you want to know the truth. On October 19, 2009, Sam McCroskey was indicted on six counts of capital murder, one for each of his four victims, as well as capital murder for murdering multiple people within three years. The evidence against him was overwhelming. His court-appointed attorney, Carrie Bowen, told Sam that they would have to reach a plea deal in order to avoid a trial and with that the death penalty. Nearly a year later, on September 20, 2010, Sam McCroskey pled guilty to two counts of capital murder and two counts of first-degree murder and waived his right to an appeal. He was given four life sentences in prison. Prince Edward County Commonwealth's attorney Jim Ennis said of Sam's motive for the murders, I think he had a certain expectation of the relationship with Emma Niederbrock, what it was going to be like after a year on the computer, and it did not turn out to be what he imagined it was going to be like. The families of the victims declined to speak to the media, but they issued a written statement expressing that they were relieved the case was over and they believed that justice had been done. Sam did not say anything during or after the hearing. He was caught on camera smirking as he left the courtroom. His attorney Carrie Bowen said he smiled when he was nervous and was remorseful for what he did. But Farmville residents were less than convinced that Sam felt remorse for his actions. Sam McCroskey is currently incarcerated at Wallens Ridge State Prison in Big Stone Gap, Virginia. So, how did the killings unfold? The district attorney's office and law enforcement pieced together the events of September 14th and 15th, 2009. The following is an account of what happened. It was concluded that Sam's rage towards Emma for rejecting him at the music festival was his motive for the murders. Mark, Deborah, and Melanie were really just in the wrong place at the wrong time. Sam had been drinking and smoking marijuana, his blood boiling as he became increasingly furious. Melanie was killed first while she slept on the couch in the den. He then killed Deborah in a room upstairs, and finally Emma in her downstairs bedroom. The three women were murdered in the early hours of September 15th with a ball-peen hammer. None of them awoke during their attacks, indicated by the absence of any defensive wounds. From around 3 a.m. on Tuesday, September 15th, to 5 p.m. on Thursday, September 17th, when Mark arrived, Sam stayed in the house with three dead bodies. The police came by during this time to carry out the welfare check Kathleen Wells had requested. When Mark Niederbrock went to the home on September 17th, he was ambushed in a room downstairs. Mark was ultimately beaten to death with an eight-pound wood-splitting maul. Sam said that he used the maul to kill Mark because he believed the weight of it meant he would not suffer. 
After killing Mark, Sam dragged his and Melanie's bodies into Emma's room. For some reason, he then tried to clean up the den. He also recorded a video of himself in which he spoke to the camera, talking about how he knew he would have to pay the consequences for what he had done, and that he was contemplating suicide. At around 3.45am on Friday, September 18th, Sam fled the scene in Mark Niederbrock's Honda after stealing the cash from his wallet. Shortly after, the car got stuck in the ditch on Poorhouse Road. Following the murders of Emma, Mark, Deborah, and Melanie, there was unsurprisingly an outcry from the public over horrorcore rap. I'm not saying that the music isn't extremely dark and violent, but does that make everybody who listens to it a cold-blooded killer? I don't think so. After unspeakable tragedies like this one, people are quick to point fingers. A lot of otherizing occurs and an us-versus-them mentality inevitably takes hold. It's natural to want an explanation for why a tragedy took place, preferably one that removes mainstream society from the equation. A few examples are people resorting to panic over violent video games, something that took hold after Columbine, or Satanism, for example, Satanic Panic in the 1980s, or in this case, horrorcore rap. Blaming games, music, or Satan worship allows people to distance themselves from the terrible event that happened. They can also comfort themselves with the thinking that it was an act of a societal outcast or social pariah. It's sort of like thinking, I don't understand that, I can't explain it. There's nothing I could have done about it, because it's not a part of my world. This sort of mindset gives society an excuse to put off addressing real problems. People become passive when they feel things are out of their control. While many, I'm sure, would be deeply disturbed by the content of horrorcore rap, it was not the reason Sam murdered Emma, her parents, and Melanie. It's much more straightforward than that. Emma was texting and chatting with other guys and was not interested in Sam. He could not stand it. He was bitter and enraged that the ideal relationship he built up in his head did not work out how he wanted it to. Maybe some don't like this as a reason for murder, perhaps because it's too simple, maybe even relatable, hence why they would rather blame it on scary music that is totally removed from their lives. Andre Schrem, the owner of Serial Killin' Records, would later say that despite the morbid music they love, fans of horrorcore are not violent people. He went on, You look at the music we do and it's kind of harsh and somewhat brutal at times, but there's a different side of life that people aren't normally accustomed to, and being an artist, I think it's important to see both sides of life. Thank you so much for listening to this episode. If you liked it, please give me a 5-star review on iTunes and subscribe wherever you're listening now. You can find the blog post for this episode on TalkMurderWithMe.com. If you'd like to support the show, you can buy me a coffee at BuyMeACoffee.com slash TalkMurder. The links to my social media accounts are in the show notes for this episode. If you'd like to get in touch, please email me at 
talkmurderwithme at gmail.com. Until next time, friends.